As one of my favorite professors says, all politics, like good seafood, is local. Ground Level is an exploration of the power and importance of local government through interviews with various public officials, political junkies, and civic-minded Americans. I hope Ground Level inspires and educates fellow Democrats that we cannot ignore state and local government if we want to build and sustain political power for generations to come. Welcome to Ground Level. Welcome back to Ground Level. I'm Henry Schultz, your host, and today's guest is Ramon Contreras. At 21 years old, Ramon is one of the leading gun violence prevention activists in New York City and in this country. He was a national field director for March for Our Lives, a youth engagement advisor for Mike Bloomberg's presidential campaign, and the founder of the national nonprofit Youth Over Guns. Thanks for joining the pod, Ramon. Thanks, Henry. Um, so let's start with the basics. Where did you grow up? Uh, so I am from New York City. I'm a New York native. I was born in the South Bronx, and I lived there for about six years, and I moved to um, Harlem, where I'm still currently at, and I grew up in the projects here in Drew Hamilton, and um, you know, Harlem has really shaped my experience and, and kind of who I am today. And that was a big, uh, big race with Richie Torres big win yeah yeah that i mean richie torres is the first uh you know openly gay afro latino uh member of congress well you know it's going to be elected to congress and um i i just think representation especially in government is one of the key things to ensuring that people stay involved in the democratic process and the more richie torres we elect i think the better um our democratic process and you know, elections um, are going to play out. Yeah, I'm so happy he won. I know, I know Ruben Diaz, uh, for context, is a crazy, um, like, homophobic uh, former member of the of the city council, and he was he was challenging um, Richie, and I'm, that was a really big win. Um, so, similarly, when did you first get politically active? Um, so, I. So that's a long story, uh, but I'll make it short. So I went to um, high school in the South Bronx, even though I moved um, to Harlem. And, you know, throughout high school, I was, you know, a, a lot of teachers would call me like, you know, the, the tough kid, the class clown. And I was always getting into trouble, always cracking jokes in class. And, you know, quite frankly, I was going down a path where my sophomore year, I was actually going to drop out of high school. Um, and it wasn't until, um, I found a mentor, his name is Tristan Fields. And I started going in every morning, studying with him. We would talk about politics and organizing and different issues happening around the country. Um, and I just honestly started doing community service. I started, um, organizing, um, clothing drives, food drives, toy drives for, um, children who, you know, weren't fortunate enough to have all those things. And from there I started, you know, learning more about the microaggressions and, the South Bronx, uh, where I was going to school in my school, and I started doing town halls, I started a school newspaper. And all of this just started to grow out of my school. And a lot of people started seeing me as like, you know, kind of the, the, the civil rights kid and like, you know, the, the kid that's, you know, organizing the community. Um, and I actually ended up getting recognized by somebody who works for the governor's office. Um, and his, uh, the wife of the finance director at the time, um, set up a meeting. And I went and I actually got invited to Governor Cuomo's 
um, birthday party. And there I got to meet a bunch of people. And governor, the governor's team actually asked me to come on as an intern at the age of 16. And it's kind of where I got my start in politics and organizing. And from there, I worked for the state party. And, you know, the story goes on. So cool. Can you real quick contextualize uh, like the South Bronx for maybe people who are not familiar with New York City or just kind of the, the political background of kind of the five boroughs and um, I think it would be helpful for listeners who are not from the city. Yeah. Or just the deep inequalities there. Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, the South Bronx is, is part of, uh, you know, the borough of the Bronx um, and it's kind of like the South part of it. And it's where I grew up. Um, the Bronx is considered one of the poorest places um, in the country. Actually, um, we have some of the lowest voter turnout, the lowest um, income per household. Um, and really, you know, back in the day, it was, it was really a tough place to grow up and things have gotten better. But still, you know, students um, and people are still struggling to find that opportunity, you know, to build economic success and build wealth. Um, and, you know, really for me and my friends going to school there and being surrounded by the community, it was it was a challenge. Um but, you know, like like most places, you have to just, you know, strive through and, and make the best of what you got. And what were some of those challenges that you faced? I mean, you know, we it was a lot of police, uh, you know, surrounding our school and our community at all times. I mean, we will leave school and, you know, there was police cars already there, you know, just waiting for something to happen. I mean, students who were going to my high school were already coming from low income families. So what we faced or coming to school with, you know, home trauma, you know, some kids coming to school with empty bellies and not being able to focus, um, you know, gun violence affecting our communities, uh, where, you know, unfortunately, in my high school specifically, you know, we lost a friend and classmate to gun violence. And, you know, all of these different injustices from, you know, uh, from housing to low income families to violence in our communities and the police, all add up to, you know, how a child is affected in the classroom and generally how, you know, they grow up in the Bronx or any place similar to the Bronx. Is that moment when you lost a classmate, was that the beginning of your gun violence prevention advocacy work or how did you get into that? So, so it it was, so like, like I said, you know, I started organizing, you know, before, you know, I, I became the gun violence activist that most people know me for. Um, and my senior year, the same day as the Las Vegas shooting, um, my friend was shot and killed. And this was a turning point in my life because I had been able to create a network of, you know, just some pretty influential uh, politicals around the city. And, you know, I was down a path where, you know, I was I, I was comfortable. I knew I wanted to be in politics. Um, and then the loss of my friend happened and it changed everything. And I knew I had to reshape my focus and put the resources that I had collected back into this cause that was hurting my community and took the life of my friend and that's gun violence. So when that happened, I, I knew that I had to do something. Not only was Las Vegas one of the deadliest mass shootings in history, but I lost a friend. And then as we know, months later, um, Parkland happened and the conversation around gun violence became you know, really centered around this white community, which they did suffer a tragedy, but, you know, was an issue that has been happening throughout the lives of, you know, millions of young black and brown students across America. So it was when I decided to start Youth Over Guns 
that I knew the goal should be to refocus the conversation to where the issue is happening the most. And that's, you know, black and brown communities. And, you know, with Youth Over Guns, I organized a march across the Brooklyn Bridge where we had 10,000 young people come out and, you know, support this cause and ensure that young black and brown students have the microphone and the platform to speak their demands on how to end gun violence in America and in their communities. It's so amazing. And I know March for Our Lives, got a lot of national attention um, and, and people are familiar with the group and David Hogg's amazing, uh, one of the co-founders and leader. Um, how did you get involved with them? Yeah, so after, so after the march in New York, um, there was a lot of press behind it. Um, you know, CNN, Complex, you know, all the big press that people follow. And I was not expecting that at all. I mean, I was only expecting about 500 people to show up to, you know, the march that, that, that um, Youth Over Guns organized. And it was just, the, the results were just amazing and, and astonished me. And after the press coverage, some of the folks from March for Our Lives actually reached out and they said, you know, we're really impressed. You know, we want to support your work. Um, and they invited me to um, their first day of their Road to Change tour, which they were going to um, 60 cities across the United States, um, about 25 plus states, organizing young people, talking about gun violence and registering young people to vote for the 2018 midterm elections. And I went with them to Chicago um, and I met all the Parkland students and then, um, you know, I spent two days there and I got to know them. We did a huge march in Chicago at night with Chance to Rapper, actually. So that was pretty cool. And then I came back home to, to Harlem to graduate. And they asked me if I wanted to come on for the you know rest of the tour um, and represent Youth Over Guns and kind of speak the message of gun violence in, in my community, you know, throughout the country. And I, I said yes. And they actually brought me on board as a national field director and from there, I just helped them create the strategy around registering young people to vote and just organizing around the message of ending gun violence in America. And I mean, it's it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. And I mean, you know, for a, a group of, you know, recent high school graduates and current high school students, you know, we, we really did make an impact in America um, that was seen, you know, on election night in 2018. Definitely. And zooming back a little bit, how do you see the kind of the second amendment gun control debate evolving in the next five to 10 years, if you have any sense? You know, this debate is just a debate that's been happening for so long. Um, and it's a, it's a really funny debate because when I remember when I was traveling, I was in the deep South, I was in South Carolina, I was in Texas and I would get into these arguments with the counter protesters who came and they like started yelling at us with AR-15s and all these pistols and stuff. And, you know, these are a bunch of high school students being yelled at by 60, 50 year olds with like these crazy, you know, war guns. And, you know, all of these guys really believe so deeply in the Second Amendment that they're willing to, you know, come threaten us in that sense. And I remember crossing the street when I was in Houston um, to go talk to some of these counter protesters. And I met this guy named David and David was there with his son. And, you know, I, I walk up to David, David was kind of offensive from, from the jump. You know, he hands me this book about the second amendment and he goes, you know, I hope you can read this. It might be difficult for you, you know, and you know, from there it was already a rocky conversation. Um, but I persisted, you know, I, I said, I'm going to see this conversation through. I want to know 
you know, why does God believe so deeply in the Second Amendment? And through our conversation, you know, I said, you know, before you even start talking, I just I don't want to talk politics. I don't want to talk Democrat, Republican. I just want to get to know you and I want you to get to know me and I want to know your experience with guns. and I want you to know my experience with guns. And I told him my story and I learned a lot about him. He was a you know police officer in Houston for a long time, retired. Um, and, you know, he he felt that, you know, it was his duty not just to protect, um, you know, his community where, you know, his home in Houston, but also his family. And he felt the best way to do that was with a gun. And, you know, I mentioned to him, I want to protect my family as well. You know, I think we both want the same thing, right? It's for our families and our loved ones to be safe. And through our conversation, you know, we started slowly shifting it to policy. And we actually started agreeing on a lot of ways to keep America safe from gun violence. Although he had more of a let's have guns type of view, and I had let's have less guns type of views, we came to the general census that if, you know, we can find a way to keep each other safe, if that is the goal, you know, if we just leave the politics out of it, then we can come to a middle ground to actually pass things like safe storage, universal background checks, red flag laws, laws that can actually save lives. And I think the debate over the next five years can actually take a turning point if we continue to have these conversations, if we continue to, if we just start to ignore the, the bias in the media that Fox News puts out a lot of times, and even CNN, you know, both right wing and left wing, and we just come together as Americans and have a conversation about what's the best way to keep each other safe from this issue. Um, and I think if we do that, there can be progress and there will be a middle ground and a solution that will keep the majority of Americans safe. That's such a good answer. Cause I've been, I, I think a lot about this in terms of like Democrats, I think we have a lot of good policy, but I, th- I think we, we dive right into the, the policy binders in the books without, as you said, like talking about the story, the values and meeting in the middle. And I just, I think that's, a really good point just i think we, we talk past each other i think democrats sometimes have a have trouble communicating what they really think is right for the country i think when you do it right a lot of people agree so that's a that's such a good answer yeah um, so i i was going through your twitter and you have a pinned tweet uh i think you were on msnbc with a, the co-founder of uh, march for our lives and you talk about civic engagement so i'm curious what type of civic engagement curriculum do you envision for schools across across the country and kind of improving that civic edu- education gap and getting people out to vote? I mean, you know, I think one of the main things we need to do is ensure that we're teaching students in America um, real American history. You know, uh, yesterday was the July 4th, right? And we were, a lot of Americans around the country were, uh, you know, celebrating Independence Day, Um, But a lot of people don't know that, you know, or a lot of people forget that not everybody was free, you know, on July 4th, 1776. Um, And that it wasn't until a couple hundred years later that African-Americans actually did, you know, gain their freedom. And then it took even a more even a couple more years for them to actually be able to vote and share the same um, rights as white Americans here in this country. And I think some of the things we have to start doing is actually teaching um, young people, you know, their history. So like Juneteenth, right? It was a big day. It was publicized a lot this year because of the police brutality and, you know, just the the brutal and unfortunate death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And 
we saw that a lot of people on social media didn't even know what Juneteenth was, right? And it was an opportunity to educate a lot of folks. And through just that one day, we saw folks trying to educate themselves more through books, through learning about the experiences of African-Americans. And I think a big part of civics is learning about the civil rights movement and what led to the civil rights movement and why a group of Americans who were discriminated for years, right, from, from slavery to Jim Crow laws to, you know, the criminalization and incarceration of, of, Af of Black Americans here in America, you know, we have to learn what caused this injustice is? What is the root of this injustice is in order to understand why voting today is so important and so powerful? Um, I sit on the advisory board of this organization called Next Gen Politics. And what Next Gen Politics does, actually, they go into different high schools across the country and they teach students, you know, how to organize, how to protest, you know, the importance of, you know, using their power to vote. And I also sit on the board of Generation Vote, which is an organization that's working nationally to protect the voting rights of young people and actually make it more accessible. Um, and I just think, like in the interview, I think that a big part of why we continue to see the wrong leadership is because our schools aren't focused on actually teaching our young people how to organize and how to correctly um, use their power to vote. And they're not being taught the history of why it's actually so important to vote today. There's a really good article in Foreign Affairs talking about just how much money we spend on STEM and how so little of it's invested in civics, political science, history. It's really depressing, but it's, it needs to be fixed. It's I mean, really... it's, it's not even just, I mean, we can have a, a lot of money going towards STEM, right? I think we should have uh, billions of dollars going towards um, our education system. And, you know, we, we I think the leadership we have now just have the wrong priorities. You know, why is in, in New York City, for example, the NYPD getting $6 billion annually? And why, you know, does their budget continue to increase, you know, before, you know, recent protests? And why was education getting cut? Why were necessary programs that people need in order to live a decent life getting cut while we have, you know, this police department that is just causing trauma in our communities, right? Like, there are so many things that we can prioritize to actually lead America in the right direction. But we continue to see failed leadership take us down the wrong path. And, you know, a huge part of that is because of, you know, our young people not being um, educated on, on civics and not really knowing the importance of voting. I mean, we saw it in this recent election. I mean, Bernie Sanders, you know, was the young person candidate. Yet, you know, Super Tuesday, young people didn't come out to vote. And, you know, there's a lot behind that reason, right? There's, you know, obviously, um, it, it, it's really hard today to vote, right? Like, not many polling places are available to young people. Um, some schools don't use their, uh, some colleges actually don't use their, um, their buildings for, for polling sites. And we saw recently in the Kentucky primary in Louisville, there was one polling site, one polling site, you know, and for hundreds of thousands of Americans, you know, who want to cast their vote for somebody they believe in, you know, I don't think they're going to want to wait for five hours, you know, while in a richer county and more privileged county, you know, there's polling sites, you know, available and more accessible to people who just want to vote, you know, in 10 minutes and then go back to their lives. You know, not many people are fortunate enough to do that. People have jobs that they work nine to five and they have to work a second shift. Right. People have to go home and take care of the children because they can't afford a babysitter. You know, people are trying to survive. And, you know, 
the, the more that we continue to suppress the vote, the more that we just see a lack of representation of the people that actually need it. Exactly. Yeah. And I, we're going to get to the, that defund the police question, but first uh, you were on the ground in New York for these protests. Um, we were seeing a massive public opinion shift on race, especially among white Americans. Um, and this movement obviously has a tremendous momentum as it should. And, and it's really not just following the news cycle. Um, what did you see in New York on the ground when you were protesting? You know, uh, I, I went out the first couple nights uh, when the police were really out there being uh, really brutal and aggressive for protesters. Um, and it was, it was scary. Um, but it was also one of the most powerful things I've seen. There was one night where I was downtown and, you know, we were out there peacefully protesting, you know, demanding justice for George Floyd, demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, you know, calling for some type of reform from the police department, NYPD specifically. And out of nowhere, we just saw, you know, like vans of police officers come out in riot gear, you know, like if they were ready to go to war. And the one thing I heard from the crowd and the one thing we kept telling each other is if we stick together, they cannot beat us. They cannot overcome us. Um, and that was the goal and message throughout the entire night. And I was out there for four hours. You know, I got home around 3 a.m. Um, and the goal was to stick together because if we remain together, they could not break us apart. Um, and as we protest and as we march and as we kneeled in front of cops, um, as we demanded some sort form of reform, um, we stuck together. And I think that is something that's happening around the country, not just New York. Americans are coming together, you know, because they believe that every person um, born in this country, or every person that comes to this country for refuge, refuge should have equal opportunities and equal rights like every other American. Um, their income or their zip code or the color of their skin, their sex, their gender, their religion shouldn't be cause for them to be discriminated against by their police department, by the people who are sworn to protect them. And the message across the country was reflected in that in those nights that I was protesting. And that is, if we stick together, they cannot overcome us. And what organizing work are you doing now to address uh, police brutality? So I've been going out. A lot of my friends are the ones on the front lines organizing these protests. And I've been going out. I've been, you know, protesting with them on the front lines. But mainly my work has been focused on really making voting accessible. Um, like I said, you know, I'm on the board of Generation Vote and, you know, the goal is to actually make sure that young people vote, right? The goal is to make sure that in, when stuff like this happens, when we see a collective passion of people coming together to, to demand some form of change, that they actually transfer that into their vote. And next year in New York City is 2021, you know, so we have city council races, we have... Uh, the huge mayoral races, which is, I mean, I'm excited for just because, you know, I'm a political and, you know, I've been yeah. geeking out, you know, for the hear about what you, what you think in a, in a little bit. <laughs> and, you know, my, my focus right now is ensuring that we actually transfer this momentum into the polls and ensure that we elect a city council in New York City and a mayor in New York City that reflects the demands that we want, that reflects the values of, of New Yorkers and the things that are necessary in order to lead the city to a better place. Um, 
And, you know, by doing that, we have to ensure that young people have the resources, young people continue to organize, and young people have um, voting sites that are accessible to them. Uh, so, you know, my work, you know, recently has been going out, showing up, opening up my wallet and donating to these causes, and also ensuring that there's a, a, a long game, right, that there's a strategy, you know, for the future to actually continue to hold this power. And are you optimistic about that transfer from protest to voting among young people? I'm an optimist, so yes. Um, you know, I, I think, I think young people are powerful. I think throughout history we've seen that, and I think that this was really a changing point in America. I mean, social media was a tool that was used to really shed light on this you know, issue of police brutality that's been happening for decades, not even decades, generations. And I think that going forward, there's been a lot of people who've been awakened by this injustice. And there's a lot of people that aren't going to stay shut. And, you know, I think this momentum is going to continue to happen on social media. It's going to reflect throughout the field. Um, and I'm quite hopeful that we're going to have a candidate to step up um, and actually you know, inspire a generation of young people here in New York to, you know, actually come out and, and organize and continue to fight. Um, you know, who that candidate is, I'm not sure yet. I do have favorites. Um, but I, I think something special is coming. And, and I think 2021 is going to be, you know, a turning point in New York City. And I hope it's the same for 2020, you know, and, and defeating Trump. You know, I, I think if we get behind, you know, um, the Democratic Party right now, which is the party that's taking on, you know, just the the injustices that the Republican Party continues to promote and continues to support, then I think it could be a beginning to really start to form a country that works. I'm not saying that the Democratic Party is necessarily the the people that will make the change happen, but I'm saying that they provide us with a start to actually start that healing process that both parties have caused so much pain on the lives of blacks and, and brown people here in America. In regards to social media, I really want to talk to you about performative activ activism uh, and contextualizing that. Uh, <laughs> an example is when that one day when a lot of people posted a black square um, in solidarity for Black Lives Matter, but you really do the work, you're on the ground um, organizing. It makes me reflect on what other activism I can engage in. So. What can people do besides social media posting? I know it's important, but to move past it, where does someone start to learn about systemic racism if they're overwhelmed? And also, how can white people do their part in fighting for racial justice? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, thank you for asking that. You know, I think I think social media is a powerful tool. I mean, not many people, millions of people wouldn't know about George Floyd if it wasn't for social media. Um, but then again, you know, there's so much more beyond, you know, just, you know, the, the, that platform there, you actually have to be educated in these issues, right? Post posting a black square isn't enough, right? And it doesn't prove that you actually know what's happening and you're actually taking effective um, actions to, to solve the issue. And my advice to, to white people is educate yourselves, read, right? Read books about our history, read books about the leaders, right? And our black communities, you know, search, you know, what America has done, you know, throughout generations to black people and, and why we're so disadvantaged today. You know, be open minded and watch documentaries about the struggles, you know, of African Americans and, and brown people here in America.
And also open up your wallets. You know, there are so many black owned businesses out here that are struggling every day, you know, to actually, you know, break through and, and, you know, create wealth, you know, within their community. And I was actually reading an, an article from 1968 to today, the wealth gap between the the white family from the average white family and average black family has not changed almost at all right um the average wealth within the black family in america is one-tenth of you know the wealth in a white family and if we can't open up our wallets to those who are disadvantaged the most and support those businesses you know then you know we're continue to to serve you know the patriarchy here in america that continues to you know provide opportunities for one set of demographic compared to the other, and I think in order to really be part of the cause and the movement, um, you know you have to educate yourself, right? You have to donate and open up your wallet, and you have to be willing to have a conversation with your family members and friends who may not be as open-minded as you are to start you know to dig deep into this um, conversation. And by doing that, you're actually helping create a whole new um, population of of educated folks, whether it's just, you know, two of your family members or two of your closest friends. I also want to shout out uh, the Collective Pack. Uh, I I recently interviewed Jevin Hodge, who's a board of supervisors candidate in Maricopa County, but uh, th- that's a pack that wants to build Black political power uh, on the local, state, and federal level. I think that's an incredible group, and um, I give money to them, and they're just, I think, really amazing. Um, so I want to jump into New York City politics, because uh, I think it's very fun to talk about. But first, can you explain the defund the police movement and its policy goals, and maybe specifically about the NYPD? Yeah, so the budget passed um, a couple days ago, and you know the, the goal behind defunding the police was, you know, the, the short-term goal was getting $1 billion, you know, defunded from the NYPD here in New York City and allocating that money towards um, different areas where we believe, the people believe, um, needed it the most. So that's like education, housing, and programs like SYP, you know, summer youth employment, where it, you know, gives young people the opportunity to actually make money um, throughout the summer, which is something that actually helps a lot of low-income families across the city. And the long-term goals is to continue to defund the police, you know, dramatically. I think like I said earlier, we are focusing on the wrong, you know, things when it comes to our budget. There is no reason why a, a department, you know, the police department should be getting billions of dollars, you know, in funding when children and teachers don't even have enough supplies in their classroom, mm-hmm. right? When literally affordable housing in New York you know, is non-existent, you know, like the average family with the average medium income here, especially within the black and brown population here in New York City, can't afford what, you know, a lot of people are calling affordable housing here in New York City. You know, um, NYCHA, for example, right? Why are we sending billions of dollars to NYPD when we have NYCHA residents, which I am one myself, and I grew up here in, in NYCHA my entire life, and our buildings are falling apart. We have lead you know, that's getting into the lugs of children, you know, and like water, you know, I've, I've gone literally a whole week without water, you know, growing up. And to me, that's become, you know, just normal. But a lot of people don't know that that happens in New York in a lot of cities across the country. Right. And if we are having these issues, 
why does the leadership that we elect, right, to protect for us, to protect us and to fight for us, why do they continue to fund the wrong things, to put their budgets um, in, in a way where they continuously leave out the working class, right, and black and brown people in New York City? I think the long-term goal is to, to just make sure that we have a leadership that is funding the correct things in New York, in New York City that are prioritizing the people um, and ensuring that we continue to defund police departments that honestly don't do much good for the, the, the working class family here in New York City. Yeah, I think NYCHA is, they need eight to $10 billion to actually make these improvements. I think, I think it's probably double that. Um, I do some research on that, that story and Ramon, you actually, you personalize it, but I find it incredibly frustrating. I worked in the city council last summer and constituents would just come in about, uh, NYCHA constituents would um, complain about all the, the issues need to be fixed and it goes on for years and it's really frustrating. But I think I have a, a question related to the budget and defund the police. Um, I think it also comes back to that idea we were talking about, about communication with, with Democrats and and kind of rethinking how we articulate our values. Do you, do you think there's like a better word for the movement than defund? Like I think like reimagine, reallocate. I know I just think it gives sometimes unneeded political leverage to the right. And I think the the policy proposal is all about show show me your budget and show me your values. And it's like we need more money in housing, and the NYPD doesn't need so much money. Do you see like a potential communication issues there, or do you see? there could be a better word for defund or like what's your take on how the right has weaponized this movement? The right is always going to weaponize anything, you know, Democrats or people say anything, the working, you know, um, the working people try to try to advocate for, they're going to find some way to, to, you know, make it about politics. Um, And honestly, I think the word defund is, is the correct word, right? It's what we're trying to do. You know, we want to, for the moment, defund the police and get our minds together and ensure that we elect the leadership that can better accurately, you know, create a budget that reflects, you know, their actual city and, and community. Um, you know, like, sure, you know, we can use, you know, reallocate fundings, but then as we saw in our last um, budget that was passed in our city council here in New York City, I mean, the way that the mayor defunded um, the police, which he did take a billion off, but he took it off in areas where it didn't really make much of an impact on how the NYPD, you know, went about their day-to-day, you know, operations. Um, so even Democrats, you know, you have to be very careful with the words, you know, you use when you're demanding change because they would try to find, you know, every corner to cut in order to ensure that they're pleasing, you know, whatever special interest, you know, is in their pockets. And I think that defund is very clear. It's a message that, you know, anybody can understand, especially our politicians. And I think when you say it over and over and over again, you know, these politicians start to realize, Democrats specifically in these democratic cities, uh, okay, we have to defund the police, right? Like that is what people want. They want to defund, you know, money from this department that they're clearly not happy with. So I, I personally, I, I think that the word choice is is i mean i i'm for it you know i say it i tweet it out i think that the right is gonna always find a way to weaponize um things and you know it's all about out organizing them and ensuring that 
you know, our people are actually going out and organizing and we're, you know, using a message of unity and, you know, not trying to do the same thing back. I think our country is so divided just because of the biased media that continues to promote political agendas from both parties and it does our country no good. Uh, and related to the NYPD, um, essentially, like from what I've read, I don't know much about it, but it seems like police unions are really standing in the middle of this policy fight. And like, how do you see, and it seems like they're, they're problematic and trying to get real substantive change done. Do you see any way, like what's the future of police unions and like their, their role in this? Uh, I mean, police officers are fighting, uh, you know, our policy demands where most of them, you know, weren't even born, right. in the communities that they police the most, right. Like I, a couple blocks from me, there's a police precinct. And in this precinct, I mean, I can probably count the number of black officers I've seen in my hand, right? And it's very obvious that these officers almost have no experience really growing up in the community and getting to understand the community. So honestly, I'm not too much concerned if a police officer from a whole different country that has no knowledge of my experience growing up here has an opinion on how the police department should look like because that person obviously does not know what's the best way to keep us safe and keep us protected. Um, and, you know, going forward with, with police unions, I think, I think our politicians have to break away from them. I think, you know, they have one interest and that interest is to, you know, and, you know, ensure, look after and protect their employees and police officers. And I think that they're going to ignore the, the, the systematic problems within the actual police department um, that that continues to cause all these injustices. Um, and I think we just have to pressure them by, you know, forcing politics, not forcing politicians, but, you know, pressuring politicians to break ties with them and stop taking money um, from anything related to law enforcement here in New York City in order to really start to reform our police department and also pressure, you know, police unions to, you know, change their ways and actually sign on to the demands that we want. And as you said, we have a election coming up 2021, city council, the mayor. Um, who do you see as a front runner? And also full disclosure, I'm doing some volunteering policy research for Sean Donovan, who's Obama's former uh, housing secretary. But yeah, what's your take and what's the what's your pulse on the how the race is shaping up? Oh, this <laughs> 2021 is going to be so interesting. Um, I mean, so I, I think that the front runner, you know, going in right now is, is Stringer. Um, but, you know, there's been a lot of recent rumors and hype around Maya Wiley, uh, who's a civil rights lawyer. Um, she's a professor at the New School. And I, I, I get really excited uh, when I just think about the possibility of Mayor Maya Wiley, you know, in New York. I think she understands the issues that New Yorkers are going through right now. I think she's been a voice against, you know, the corrupt politicians and she's been a voice against Trump and, and all the disgusting things he says. And I think she has a clear vision and she has a very clear message on what she believes and what she believes is that, you know, everyone deserves a chance, you know, no matter what their background is. And I, I'm honestly excited for her um, to possibly launch her mayoral race. And 
there's a woman right now who announced her name is Diane Morales. I hope I'm saying her name right. She's an Afro-Latino woman. Um, and she was out in the protest and her and her son actually got maced by NYPD officers while, while protesting. Um, and I think she's very exciting. Um, but I, I don't get excited by, by anybody else, really. I mean, I think we need something new in New York City. And I, I, I think Stringer is, you know, I think Stringer is, is cool and all. But, you know, Stringer has, although he's been leaning, you know, towards Elizabeth Warren and more progressive, you know, within the last couple of years, we all know it's because he wants to run for mayor. But I think we need somebody that's not a long-term politician, right? I think we need somebody that's not thinking about their next seat. And as we know, de Blasio was thinking about the presidency the whole time, which was a complete fail. But I think we need a clear vision. Um, And I am excited for possibly the candidacy of Maya Wiley. That's awesome. Yeah, it seems like Corey Johnson and Stringer are, they've been fundraising probably for a couple of years. They are deeply entrenched. New York City politicians, and yeah, it feels like they uh, wouldn't see we wouldn't, we wouldn't see the the, pro, the progress we want uh, in New York. Um, so we're at the same point in college, and I, I feel like a total underachiever. Oh <laughs> but, no! no. <laughs> what, what's your advice to fellow college students who want to do advocacy work and make a difference? And what do you say to maybe some members of the older generation who kind of, to discount the power of a student and are like, oh, you can march in the street, but you probably don't vote. What, what do you say to them? We had this saying, um, we used to say this thing on the road when I was with March for Our Lives, and it was, don't trust anyone over 35. <laughs> um, and it's a, it's a joke, but, you know, a lot of adults try to, you know, limit the possibility of young people. Um, and as college students and as you know, the next generation of, of leaders, actually leaders today, but the next generation of people who will be enacting the changes that, you know, we're demanding today, we have to continue to, you know, stand up for what we believe in. My advice to every young person um, in college or in high school is to, you know, if you have a passion, you know, whether it's art, whether it's organizing, whether it's film, you know, whatever it is, writing, you know, follow that passion and, you know, do everything you can to make sure that you're inclusive, right? And that whatever you do in life, you're making it accessible to others. You're bringing other people in and you're, you know, you're leading a life, you know, of kindness and compassion. Um, I always tell, you know, people, and I, I live by this myself, is the best thing we can do is be a good neighbor, be a good son, you know, be be a good brother um, and, and be, you know, be a good member of the community. And if we do those simple things, and we pay attention to the injustices happening in our country, and we speak out against it, then I'm very hopeful. And that's my advice. It's what I've done. You know, I've anytime I've seen something wrong, I've just always used my voice. Even, even if I felt like my voice wasn't powerful enough in that moment, I always tried. Um, and it's something I'm going to continue to do for the rest of my life. Whenever I see something wrong, I will always speak out. And to the adults who want to limit our power and our voice, I mean, you know, my my message to them is, you know, just, you know, either sit back, you know, and and support us, you know, or, you know, sit back and, you know, be quiet. Um, the future is ours. And, you know, if we want a future, we can't look to the past. That's such a good answer. And uh, it's a very fitting question because we're at July 4th weekend. But what does patriotism mean to you? That's a interesting question. Um 
you know, I've I've thought a lot about America and what it means to be a patriot um, in these past couple weeks. But to me, you know, I I would say being a patriot, being patriotic means living up to the ideals and the original beliefs of America. That every man and woman and any person that's non-binary are created equally and have a chance of actually having a decent life in America. Um, I think if we live up to those ideals, I think if we live up to that message that um, what America was originally supposed to be, then I think, you know, that's that's what it means to be patriotic. I think treating everyone the same and I think ensuring that you're doing your part and understanding the struggles of somebody else in order to better govern ourselves into a into a government that represents the real issues that we need solved in this country. And I think that's what it means to be a patriot. That's such a good answer. And I, uh, I think of the preamble and how we've never actually perfected the union. Um, and that's a, it's a thing I've been thinking about this weekend and how I can, uh, do my part in, in helping in this fight for racial justice and just listening to, to leaders like you, Ramon, it's just such a good conversation. Um, truly incredible leader can you just tell our listeners how they can kind of keep track of what you're doing and your social media accounts um just to kind of think i know i have at least one friend of my friend liam's listening but he followed you on twitter isn't really he's very inspired by you so what's your uh your social media handle yeah so on you, you can follow my work on instagram my social media handle is ramon.contreras and then the number one um, and then on Twitter, it's underscore Ramon Contreras. Um, you know, I, I try to post as much as I can, um, you know, and my DMs are always open. I'm always willing to have a conversation about, you know, just, you know, kind of, you know, what's happening and, and you know, I'll try to send resources and I'm always posting different marches and opportunities and organizations that are doing great work. Um, so, yeah, you know, follow me and, you know, let's let's build a movement. Thank you so much, Ramon. Thank you. Thank you, Henry.